Well, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians 13 once again, and as we do, let's, uh, let's just turn to the Lord in prayer again. Our Father God, how, how grateful we are to look to your word. Teach us, we pray. We come here this morning to worship you together. We come also so that we can learn more of you, that we might be changed. And we also come so that we might serve one another and honor your name through the ministry of service. And so may everything that we do and think this morning, uh, the way we listen, the way we apply, may it glorify your name. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're in the middle of that section, which is verses 4 through 7, which is on love. Uh, this is the fourth message in that section of verses 4 through 7. The very first message was a message just on the first practice of love. Love is patient. And we, we did that actually before our break last July. Love is patient. And then we came back and, and uh, we, we tackled in the second message four practices of love. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. And love is not arrogant. And then the third message last week was another four practices. Love does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered. And this morning, I don't want to be too ambitious, but I'm hoping that we can get all the way through verses 6 and 7 with a total of six practices of love. That's what we're looking at. And uh, because love is one of the most misunderstood words and concepts in our society in our world, uh, let's, I'd like to begin just by allowing you to share with me some of the definitions of love that you have heard. This doesn't have to be one you know, that you have actually come up with or you adhere to, but it could be something that you've heard, that the world says, whatever, rock music. What, what is love? Yes. Love is love. love is love. Oh, that is so deep. That is so good. That is so ignorant of first grade where the definition cannot be in the word, right? But, but it is, uh, okay, love is love. And there are a lot of definitions of love that are like that, right? Yeah, okay. What else is love? All you need is love. All you need is love. That's right. Thank you, John Lennon. Um, uh, actually, Charles Schultz said, all you need is love, but a little chocolate now and then doesn't hurt. So uh, just a variation of that. Um, so, uh, what else? What else is, yes? Love means never having to say you're sorry. Wow, I don't even know how to, you know, uh, I don't know how to respond to that because uh, sometimes I am sorry and I do love. And I think sometimes the loving thing is to say you're sorry or forgive me or, yeah, right, okay. So, all right. Yes? Love is a battlefield. Yeah. Oh, how deep that is. Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, what's love got to do with it? Love is a secondhand emotion. That's right. Who needs a heart when a heart may be broken? Thank you, Tina Turner. Um, yeah, this, this, it's getting worse. We're, we're drifting. Listen to some dictionary definitions of love. Uh, love is an intense feeling of deep affection. 
That's if it's a noun. Um, but if it's a verb, love is to feel deep affection for someone. And I think those are both inadequate definitions of love because love is something that we must practice even when we don't feel like practicing it. You, when you love someone, you are faithful. You're loyal. It's a loyal kind of love. No matter what the circumstances are, you will practice love. And when you fail to practice love, you will go back and repent of not practicing love in a loving way and continue to love. And the more you practice biblical love, the more those feelings of joyous affection will come about, should be produced. I I believe that. I've seen that. Um, And one of my favorite definitions of love is in a little booklet. I've quoted this often, but a little booklet by a pastor named Jim West called The Art of Choosing Your Love, in which he says, uh, love is a responsibility that when rightly practiced reignites feelings of joyous affection. He says those feelings are produced in the laboratory of responsibility and duty. So there's this idea that we have a responsibility to love, a responsibility to practice love. It cannot be separated from the feeling of affection. But even when those affection, uh, affectionate feelings are not there, love still must be practiced. And we believe that if you are practicing it in an, a godly way, that those feelings of affection will come about. And so... When we look at this passage, we are challenged because with these, we, although this isn't a comprehensive definition of love, it's a good representation of what practicing love looks like. And all of these are verbs. We've talked about that. And we see that there are 15 practices of love in verses 4 through 7 of 1 Corinthians 13. And these should help us to practice Christ-like love as opposed to selfish sinful behavior in the church. And that's the context. We've talked a lot about the context of Corinthians. He's contrasting love, which we should desire, to a selfish, sinful behavior, which was so prevalent in the church. And so we skip down to verse 6, and we see the 10th practice of love, and that is love does not rejoice in, in evil. Love does not rejoice in evil or in unrighteousness. 1 Corinthians 13, 6 says this, Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Some uh, versions say love does not rejoice in iniquity. The word unrighteousness or iniquity in verse 6 is the idea of doing something wrong or wicked, though it is actually, uh, the word is, The word righteous is there with a negation at the beginning of it. So it really is literally unrighteousness. Um, So this is challenging to us, I think, because um, sometimes we, when we are treated poorly and we see someone caught up in sin who treats us poorly, and then that sin starts to affect their lives, we sometimes get tempted to rejoice in the fact that they're being caught up in their own sin. And really, love does not rejoice in sin. Love has no pleasure in sin being present anywhere. 
Now, um, sometimes, and I've said this before, um, when we see someone who's caught in sin and they deny the gospel, they deny Christ, or they don't want anything to do with Christ, we say things like, well, that person loves their sin so much, and that's why they will not yield to Christ. They will not give up their sin. If, if they have to admit that there's a creator and that God is in control and that the Bible is his word, then they're going to eventually have to give up their sin, but they love their sin so much so they won't even concede that there is a God. So do you think that's true, that some people think, some people love their sins so much that they will do just about anything to justify it? I, I think it, it's true in one sense, but in another sense, it's really impossible to say that people love their sin because love does not rejoice in iniquity, and true love would never rejoice in sin. Now, you have to be careful about this because in Psalm 52, the psalmist writes, you love evil more than good. So on the one hand, we're saying, well, wait a minute, love does not rejoice in iniquity. And on the other hand, we find a passage that says, you love evil. So how is it possible? How is it possible? Is it possible for evil to be loved? Anyone? Okay, I did prepare. Um, so I, th- I think the answer, as we think about that apparent dichotomy, is the fact that the psalmist in Psalm 52 is not talking about true love. He's not talking about biblical love, the purest form of love. He's talking about a self-centered love, which is not true love at all. And he's confronting people on their actions. And so when we look at this term love, we realize that there are people who affectionately revel in sin. They don't want to give it up at all. Occasionally, I will have people come to me. I remember uh, when I was, really before I was even in seminary, um, I was wrestling with the question of, um, would I marry two unbelievers if they came to me to marry them? And, um, and so I asked a pastor, a friend of mine, uh, you know, would he? Because I, I just couldn't imagine ever being a pastor and standing up before a congregation and saying, Father God, we pray now that you would bless the union of these two people who deny you, who are in rebellion against you, and who have, want to do nothing associated with your name. May you be honored in this. At the same time, I believe that marriage is something not only for Christians, but marriage is something that is is God's plan uh, for families throughout the world. So I want families to be married. But I'm I'm questioning, like, what what would I do if I became a pastor? Would I? And and so I asked this pastor. He was a. I worked for him. I was a a student, um, like an intern 
at my university for the campus pastor, and he'd been a pastor for more than 20 years. I said, I said, uh, you know, would you? And he said, I've never had to. He said, I've had plenty of couples come to me and ask about me doing their wedding ceremony, and I meet with them. And in the first meeting, we talk about the gospel, and we talk what a, about what a Christian marriage is and what the message would be at a Christian wedding ceremony. And I ask them if they want that message proclaimed before all their friends and family, and if that is what they believe. And, and one of three things happens. Uh, either they, they say, yes, we want that. This is what we want. This is what we believe. And they profess faith in Christ. Secondly, uh, a second option is they say, wow, we haven't lived that way, but we want to believe that. And they come to faith in Christ during that time of premarital counseling. Or they hear what a Christian marriage really should be like, and they say, actually, we don't want that proclaimed at our wedding ceremony. That's not what we're about. And we should probably look for someone else to do our wedding that's not going to be a Christian wedding ceremony in, in this sense of what you're describing. And so they decide not to have me do their wedding. And I love that. And I've tried to practice that over the years. And I've had those same three reactions from various couples who've said, yeah, I, I guess we don't want a Christian wedding ceremony. Um, and, and, and so it, it's, been, it's been a challenge. It's been good. But sometimes... You have people, we get so caught up in sin that we do justify it. So you have a couple that comes to you for counseling, for premarital counseling, and they're, 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 they're so wrapped up in their sin, and they don't want to give it up. And so do they want a Christian wedding ceremony? And then I had one couple at one time who said to me years ago, they said, we do want a Christian wedding ceremony. We know that we're living in sin. But we feel that just the fact that we know we're in sin is enough. And I, 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 I was astonished because I, I'm just trying to think this through. And I actually asked him, wow, think about when you have kids. How is that answer going to, to come back to you? That, Dad, I know this is wrong, but as long as I know it's wrong, it's okay. There really should be no consequences for this. And you see the inconsistency in our thinking, and this is, this is how skewed we get because of sin. And so the Corinthians were challenged by Paul because they were guilty of rejoicing in sin. And we know this because back in chapter 5, take a book, look at back at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we have this passage we've gone through already where Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such kind that does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And so there was this situation in the church in Corinth where there was an incestuous uh, relationship, either with a mother or a stepmother, but it was so flagrant, so known in the church, and so offensive that even people outside of the church would have, not, would have been astonished by it, and what, what is surprising about this is not that it happened, but that the church seemed to accept it. Uh, verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven 
leavens the whole lump of dough. And it seems like, and as you read the context there, the church itself had this mantra of, we are accepting of everybody and everything. And therefore, we are not going to confront even open, flagrant, immoral sin. We will rejoice in it. And Paul says, I'm not even there, and I know this is wrong, and those people should be out of the church. That's what happens in chapter 5. Love doesn't condone sin. Love doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rather lovingly, but firmly, it confronts sin, which is why Romans 12, 9 says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. Or Isaiah 5, verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So I know that we live in a world where people say it's so unloving to confront sin, but actually the opposite is true. The loving person confronts sin. And I know that it's much easier uh, to see a speck in your brother's eye than the log in your own eye, and so you can become too aggressive in that confrontation. But everything we should do, that, that shouldn't keep us from actually what, what, what the Sermon on the Mount there, Matthew 5 through 7, is teaching us about judging is not that we shouldn't judge one another, but that we shouldn't be judgmental. There's a difference between judging and being judgmental. Judging is confronting one another and should be done in a loving way. The scripture teaches judge with righteous judgment. But judgmentalism is wrong, and judgmentalism is where you judge others by a different standard than which you judge yourself. And if you turn back to Matthew chapter 7, that passage, it makes it clear because it says, Matthew 7, verse 1, do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by the standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at your, the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So the whole idea here is not that you'll leave the speck in your brother's eye, but when you see something in someone else's life that is not consistent with the word of God, you first take that and apply it to your own life and say, Lord, show me. Help me to see wicked ways in me. Help me to see if there's a hint of even the same sin because my, my vision is so much better looking at other people than looking at myself. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. But uh, the other side of that is found in the 11th practice that teaches us how to truly love, and that is love does rejoice in the truth. Love rejoices in truth. Again, verse 6 says, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. What is the opposite of unrighteousness? Righteousness. So it seems odd at first that he would contrast. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. He's not speaking about factual truth. He's not saying one plus one equals two. Oh, how true that is. And so we don't rejoice in unrighteous behavior, but mathematics, 
That is where it's at. It's, it's not what he's talking about. He's talking about love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. The truth, the ultimate truth is the gospel, the good news of Christ. The truth is God's word. Love rejoices in the gospel, but is opposed to anything that is against the gospel. Love does not rejoice in anything opposed to the gospel. The gospel is an outpouring from God of the highest example of love that we can know of. The Bible places a high emphasis, a strong emphasis on both truth and love working together simultaneously because without truth, there is no love. True love rejoices in truth. 2 John chapter 1, verse 6 says this, This is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. 2 John 1.8 says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not, deceive, do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. So true love is actually discerning. It's not undiscerning like the Corinthians thought true love was, that, oh, well, let's not judge. Let's not, no matter what's going on in their life, let's just all fellowship in the church. We're not going to confront sin. True love is discerning. And if it's not, it doesn't make any sense at all. Here's a quote from a mystic teacher who makes no sense at all. He says, quote, there is only one religion, the religion of love. When I say this, I'm not negating other religions. I'm telling you that love is the essence of all religions. We have to attain our divinity. That is the ultimate goal of life. That is the essence of all religions. That is unity and harmony of all religions, which doesn't make any sense at all. Because Religions, different faiths, different beliefs are based on facts, on truths. And this idea that there's some wagon wheel out there, that every religion is on the outside of it, and they all have spokes leading to one God, is an incorrect view because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And so either he is the way to God, and all the other spokes are incorrect, or Jesus was a liar and a deceiver, and he was incorrect, and he's not God, and he can't be the way, and some other way, or all other ways must be, but they all cannot be the way, unless you're going to just get away with absolute truth. You have to destroy truth to believe that anything you believe can be right. Paul has just spent all of chapter 12 speaking about the abuse of spiritual gifts in Corinth. 
And he closes it by saying, let me show you the more excellent way. And he opens up chapter 13 with this series of exaggerations. It doesn't matter if you understood all the mysteries in the world. and Without love, it'd be nothing. It doesn't matter if you have the greatest amount of faith uh, or the greatest amount of wealth to feed the poor, whatever. Without love, you are nothing. And he begins with these two positive statements. Love is patient. Love is kind. He, he then transitions into eight negative statements in a row. It is not jealous, not boastful, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered, does not keep a ledger of offenses. In verse 6, we find the eighth consecutive statement about what love is not. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. And then he pivots back to the positive, love rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth. And it really is, it really is the gospel and the good news revealed to us in this book, the story, which the halfway point of the story in this book is Genesis chapter three, because the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, we have this amazing um, story of a perfect relationship between God and man. And then sin enters the world and, and man sins against God. And the rest of this book is really how we can restore that perfect relationship with him. And it, it's really pointing towards the need for a sacrifice. And Christ is God in the flesh who came down, lived a perfect life, and is able to be a sacrifice for those who repent of their sin and turn and trust in him. And for those of you who have turned and trusted in him, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and you will never be judged for your sins. From a legal, from a judicial standpoint, the sins that you've committed in the past, the sins that are presently going in your life, the sins that you have yet to commit have all been forgiven if you are in Christ. Nailed to the cross, paid for in full. And yet from a parental standpoint, your father will discipline you as children when you sin. Not that he's going to kick you out of his family, but we have a loving father who disciplines us. But the fact that we had no hope and there was no way to save ourselves. And that, that gospel truth motivates us to love. And we sing about this. Think about this, this song, In Christ Alone. In Christ Alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in, in helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. When we sing about that song, we're singing about the fact that we live today because of his death and that fact that God saved me from God. God saved me from his own wrath through the sacrifice of his son. And the fact that he would do that motivates me to love not only him, but to love others, especially those who are among his body. And this is really what Paul is getting at because he's trying to get to the Corinthians saying, you should be known not for all these other things you're clamoring after, but for love. In the second century AD, the Roman emperor Hadrian sent an unbeliever named Aristides to spy out the people known as the way or Christians. And he wanted to learn more about them. So he sent this unbeliever to go and 
learn what he could about Christianity and come back and give him a report of what Christians were like. And in his report to the emperor, he said of those early believers, behold how they love one another. In his report, he said, their trust is in Christ and their trust in Christ impacts how they live because they know and trust in God. From him, they receive those commandments which they have engraved on their minds and which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. For this reason, they do not commit adultery or immorality. They do not bear false witness or embezzle. They do not covet what is not theirs. I love it that he observed their behavior, but it was tied to their belief and also their hope. Their hope, which... which pushes us now to these last four practices found in verse 7. Verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Now, we, we we know that he's writing by way of hyperbole here, right? This is one of Paul's writing styles. We can see it in 1 Corinthians 13, We know it's hyperbole because you can't literally mean that love believes all things. He's just said that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. So someone who says, well, I think love is rejoicing in iniquity. You're wrong. Well, love believes all things. Yeah, but not that. But it says all things. Yeah, but all doesn't mean all, all of the time. It doesn't. All doesn't mean all the time when it's a hyperbole because a hyperbole is an exaggerated form of speech in order to make a point. Just like I don't, if I told you a million times not to exaggerate, that's hyperbole. I didn't really tell you a million times. And and the idea that we look at in in verse chapter 13, we saw this when we looked at um, verse two, if I have to get to prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Um, did Paul know all mysteries and have all knowledge? No. How do we know that? Because in the very same chapter, he says in verse 12, for now we see in a dear mi- dimly, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I have been fully known. So it's clear that he's using this exaggerated speech and he uses the same speech when he talks about this, 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 these, in verse seven, these words, all the word, the repeated word, all, all things, all things, all things. Some uh, have pointed out that this word in Greek can be translated as always, which would be, I think that's already implied because out of all 15 verses here, the, all, all 15, um, not verses, the 15 practices of love, they are all written in the present tense, which in Greek, what it's trying to get across is the present tense is the continuous tense. Some of these he's talking about in the future, for example, hopes all things. Your hope is in the future. And yet we have this idea of all of the time. It's because it's the continuous tense, every one of these is all of the time. That's the implication. Love is patient all of the time. Love 
is kind all of the time. How do we know that? Because it's written in the continuous tense. And so the implication there is that it is continuously patient. It would be so easy to be patient for just a short amount of time, but love is patient all of the time. And so we get to these last four. We'll look at verse uh, the 11th practice. Love supports others. Love bears all things. The word bear here means to cover or to support or to protect. And so it's the idea that you are pr- protecting others. You're, you're sheltering them. You are uh, supporting them. You are hiding them from exposure or ridicule and harm. You do not gossip. You do not listen to gossip. Um, You support others. The pastor I told you about before that I worked for uh, when I was in college, I was his assistant. And we, uh, back in the the early 90s, we had a TV station on our college campus that was broadcast to the rooms. This was pretty high tech. To the rooms through our Taylor TV in Indiana. They had... Uh, actual cables and stuff that could go to the rooms and TV could be broadcast. And, and there were phones that were on the wall that you could call in and ask questions. And so those in the communications department had shows and we could watch Taylor TV. And, and there was one lady who had a show, one student who girl, girl had a show. And I, I, it kind of turned out that it's sort of, I think her hero might've been Oprah Winfrey or something like that, because it started this, um, uh, this, uh, this show where they, they would kind of have different topics, and they asked me as a student chaplain to come in and be a guest on it, and they also had a, a student and they had a faculty member. And the three of us were on a panel, and people called in and gave questions, and then she asked the questions. And she asked the question, this is the question. She said, don't you think that the campus pastor is arrogant when he's on the platform? That was the question. And the student answered first, and the student said, yeah, I think he appears to be arrogant. And then the faculty member said, no comment. And then they asked me, and I said, "Um, well, I've known him now for more than a year, and I've been in his home, and I don't see anything different at home than I see on the platform. I think that once you get to know him, you realize that what you may be interpreting as, as arrogance is really just his his character, but it's not arrogance. It's just uh, the way he speaks, and it it's maybe sounds that way. I started to defend him, and I did my best, which at that age was probably not all that great. But uh, I remember afterwards getting through that, and he was really hurt by it, and he thought about quitting. I mean, he was so just, just, just hurt by it. And I remember he sat down with me one day, and he said, you know, I, I appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, I mean, he said, you know, you didn't just chime in and agree. You didn't, um, you didn't actually just uh, say no comment, which actually gives the impression that you agree, but you're not going to say it. But he said, I was disappointed that you defended me. And I said, what else could I have done? And I learned a lesson from him that day that I've never forgotten. And I think it's helpful for us because I'm going to say this. I believe that as you mature in Christ, your internet presence should probably diminish. The more mature you are in Christ, the more likely it is that your internet presence, what you write on the internet, on social media, will go down. 
And, 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 and it's a general statement. There are exceptions to that. Okay, all right. But the reason I say that is here's what he said to me. He said to me, the best answer I think you could have given in those circumstances on live TV with over 100 people watching. Um, uh, he said the, the best answer would have been, I don't think it's appropriate to talk about other people when they're not here. See, we forget that lesson. We forget that love bears all things, that we protect people, that we love people, and that we are there to shelter people. And so what we do is we get caught up thinking that our voice matters in something that we should have nothing to talk about. And and that's the danger of the Oprah Winfrey uh, uh, society, which has now transpired into every home because everybody has a voice on the internet where we end up talking about things that we really shouldn't be talking about publicly. That if we're going to talk about it with the person, if we're really concerned about the person, we're going to go to them just between the two of us, Matthew 18, 15, wanting to win them over. And this is everywhere. And that's, that's why I say I, I really think that, that this idea of love bearing all things is, should have an impact on what we participate in in our speech and what we write. Love trusts others. Also in 1 Corinthians 13, 7, this is the 13th practice. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Believes all things. The idea of this is that love is never suspicious or cynical. Um, it has a, an undying trust, which is, a, which is a characteristic of true love. Um, if there's any doubt about a person's guilt in a certain issue, love believes what is best. If you know that something is wrong, that's different. But if you are not sure, you give the benefit of the doubt. Love believes all things doesn't mean that you're gullible right? Uh, my sister was gullible, right, when she was a kid. And my brother and I were not loving because we, we told her that when she went to our grandparents' house uh, that she asked if she, we missed her. And we said, no, because when you go to grandma and grandpa's house, your twin sister comes here. And my sister's name was Sharon Carroll. And we said she had a twin sister named Karen Cheryl. And that... <laughs> And that, uh, and Karen Cheryl usually lived at Grandma and Grandpa's house, but every time she got dropped off, Karen Cheryl came here, and so we didn't miss her at all. She was devastated that she never met her twin sister. That's believing all things. But love, love doesn't believe all things. But when you have the benefit of the doubt, you do believe. Someone said it this way, I love it. Love gazes upon the best quality of others, but only glances at their poor qualities. I like that. You see somebody's poor qualities, and it's so easy to stare on that and to be myopic and, and just kind of like focus in on that, and that's all you see. But the pattern of somebody who believes all things glances at that, and gazes upon what God has already done in their lives and is doing in their life. And so love trusts. It gives the benefit of the doubt. The same idea is in Galatians 6 when you restore a fallen brother. Galatians 6, 1, Brother, and if a man is overtaken by in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness 
considering yourself lest you also be tempted. So love bears all things, believes all things. The 14th practice of love is love encourages others. It hopes all things. It hopes all things. When you're disappointed with the outcome of a certain situation, if you are loving, you will have hope. When we... um, Hope is this interesting term because we use it differently than the Scripture uses it. When we use the word hope, we don't mean it with surety. We, we mean it with, an in, there's an indefiniteness about it that, that kind of dominates the idea. When a student walks into a classroom and tells the professor, I hope I do well on this exam, right? Uh, there's some in- uncertainty there. Uh, it's a desire, a longing for, maybe without even any good reason for it, right? Um, but in, in Scripture, um, we have this, this hope that is always, uh, there's a strong expectation because it is based on Christ. Christ is our hope. So, Uh, the writer of Hebrews says, we have this hope which is firm and secure. We have an anchor for the soul, right? Our hope, and you want to do a good study, do a study on the word hope in the New Testament, and you will see that there is a definiteness to it. There is an expectation that things will work out for best even when the unexpected happens. Christ always preached that truth was hopeful, He even denounced self-righteous people. And he would say, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And when you hear about his words of condemnation against sin, you say, how can I ever have hope? But we have this hope who's in Christ. And that hope is expressed well in Paul's writing to the church in Rome in Romans 8, 38 and 39, where he says, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how sure our hope is. It's based on the future. And for the Corinthians, that future hope should help them during times of difficulty, which brings us to the 15th characteristic, the last one, Love holds on to others. It endures. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This word endure is a military term. It was used to describe an army's responsibility to hold on to a vital position at all costs. It holds on to those whom it loves. It always supports, always trusts, always encourages, and that's why it holds on. We think about Stephen, the first martyr in the church in Acts chapter 7, whom, when he was proclaiming Christ, was not only ridiculed, but they began to throw stones at him, and the hatred for his message did not cause him to stop hoping that they would hear and be saved. And even as he's being pummeled, Acts 7 verse 60 says, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. And so may we have this same attitude 
this same endurance. Um, People often take the name Jesus and they replace it with love in here. Jesus is patient. He is kind. He is not jealous. He does not brag. The challenge is, does this describe steadfast? Does this describe Grace Church? Does this describe you? And that's where we feel this this real sense of, oh, wow, Lord, help me. And his grace is sufficient to help us. But this is a challenge because this is who we should be. So I've covered a lot and I've, I've skipped over some things. I want to stop. We have uh, some time here at the end. Any questions about what we've covered today? Yes. So the question is, when you're offended by someone else, how do you examine your own heart motive and how do you approach that person in a way that's not self-seeking? Yeah. And that's hard because we are often self-centered. I mean, that's, we're selfish people, right? And so uh, as best as we possibly can, we, we come before the Lord and we say, Lord, I, I don't want this for me. Forgive me because in my heart, it's pulling me for me. And, and, and again, it's like, it's like when you're angry, right? We talked about uh, love is not angry, but it, it will be angry over things that offend God. But when you, are that, that, you have that anger that is about yourself, it's an unrighteous anger. So Lord, am I upset with this because of me, because the way it makes me feel, because I've been belittled? And so you really need to come before the Lord and, and ask him to help you see your own heart. And then I think you need to ask yourself, according to Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, what is best for this other person? If I truly believe that I should uh, consider others better than myself, then the question is, what's better for this other person? Should I confront them in love? Or should I actually just cover over it with love? And that's a, that's a, a, a tough question. Uh, and I think that sometimes when you feel like you should just cover over it, um, because you don't want to deal with it, that's not a good enough reason. That, that, the question is, should I deal with it? What's best for them? If I were guilty of the same sin, another key to it as well, and this brings out my little card with some of my favorite quotes, this one that I pull out just occasionally, actually a lot. But anyways, I love this. This is Jonathan Edwards. Are you ready? Resolve to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sin and misery to God. We need that. 
we need to first examine ourselves. And then becomes the difficult and awkward task of going to the person saying, listen, I've tried to look at myself. I'm coming to you because I would want you to come to me if you saw the same thing in me. I know this is awkward. I know this might make our relationship worse, but I'm coming to you genuinely because I care. And I'm concerned about what you've said, not because it offends me, but because if they're a believer, because it brings down the name of Christ or because it harms other people or because it may harm other people. And I know you don't want to do that. And so I'm coming to you in love. And this is, this is the, that's the process we go through. We have to ask those various questions. Other questions? Yes. Yeah. How can you lovingly gossip? Is that what you're asking here? No. Um, uh, so Eric was asking the question, how do we actually, uh, can we talk about other people? Um, uh, and, and how do we do that without being guilty of gossip or, or whatever? And I just think we need to be very careful. I just think, you know, listen, we saw this last week, right? If you're going to boast, boast in the Lord. That's what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 31. And that, 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 that's, that's a great passage to go to. Um, so, um, so that as, just as is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Um, we, you know, I think so often, uh, any time that you um, tear down others, that you, that anytime you exemplify pride, or boasting in yourself, you only do it by standing upon other people. And so therefore, the only thing we're to boast of is Christ. And that's the challenge. The challenge, I think, is not to avoid talking about other people in a bad way. I think the challenge for a lot of us is how do we boast in Christ without sounding um, superficial or sounding holier than thou or, you know, and, and, and that is we just need to start, you know, just dwelling upon what he's done in our lives. So sometimes that means leaving a conversation. Sometimes it means actually speaking out and saying, I don't think it's right to be talking about this person when they're not here. Yeah, it, it requires a boldness for sure and a discipline because it's so easy. And it's all around us. Yes. A follow-up question on that. How does that apply to public figures? Yeah. Yeah. How does it apply to public figures? Because, man, we're reading about it, we're hearing about it, it's in the news and all this. Well, if the, if the public figure is not a believer, what do we expect them to behave like? I, I don't expect unbelievers to behave like believers. So I don't think there's much for me to say on it other than, wow, let's pray. Let's pray for that person. That's probably a great response to believers who are public figures as well. Um, there is a certain 
there is a certain, I, I think this is where the church comes in. The problem comes in that we live in a society where we're not thinking about the church. But every Christian should be under the authority of a local church and be accountable to godly leaders in that church. And so it's really the responsibility, and God will judge the leaders who do not deal with those public figures who are defaming the name of Christ. It's their responsibility. It's really not our responsibility. And I'll just say this last thing. If the thing you're known for is exposing the sin of others, you better buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride for you. And I, I, just, I, don't just, just, I don't think a ministry of condemnation is a spiritual gift. It's so easy to be critical of others. So, wow, we got to work hard at uh, extracting that log. So I hope that helps. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Father God, we come before you and we, we worship you and honor you. You are high above all nations. Your glory is above the heavens. Who is like you? Who is enthroned on high as you are? We know, Lord, from your word that oceans flee before you, that mountains skip like rams and the earth trembles before you. And as your servants, we come before you humbly, bringing you glory and honor and praise as is due you. And we pray as the psalmist cried out, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. May that be the prayer that is on our hearts and minds. And even today, as we have conversations and see people, may we be mindful of the difficulties that they might be going through, and may we be an encouragement and a a glory to your name by the way we care about others and not think about ourselves. We pray all this in the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ. Amen.